Well, uh, while they are going through the crowd, if you will turn in your Bibles to First uh, Peter chapter one. Thank you, Jeremy. I was needing that already. Um, originally, uh, Jim was going to to step in for Pastor Sam and and preach uh, on this Sunday. And uh, as you guys know, he's kind of finishing up his, some of his uh, medical treatments. And, and so uh, Pastor Sam asked me last week if I could step in and fill in. I feel like this thing's coming off of my face. Um, and so I, I, was, I was very excited because the Lord has been doing uh, some challenging things in my life. And, and how many of you guys know that, that anything worth anything is is, is challenging. It's difficult. It takes work, right? Uh, you know, I think a lot, you know, Paul said that uh, physical exercise is worth a little bit, but spiritual, stretching ourselves spiritually is more. And so I use that analogy, you know, uh, your, your biceps aren't going to get bigger by watching TV, right? It's, it's by exercise. It's by exerting ourselves. You know, if there's any runners in the house, you have to run many, many, many miles in order to run the race, right? And so it's by stretching ourselves and, and, and being put in uncomfortable positions that the Lord makes us what we're supposed to be. He, he makes us spiritually fit to run the race of life. He makes us spiritually fit to make a difference. And so I want to tell you this on the front end, that this morning I want to challenge you and I want to stretch you and I am not throwing out anything that the Lord's not currently doing in my life. And, and you know, as the Lord uh, challenges us and stretches us, we're made more fit to serve Him and to live for His glory. Amen? So, uh, while, while you guys are still maybe turning to First Peter, I'm going to go ahead and pray over our time together and, and pray that this thing will stay on my face. <laughs> Lord, we... We thank you for today, God. We thank you that you are good. Lord, we thank you that your word is powerful, that it is alive, that it is living and sharp and active, oh God. And Lord, we, we pray that your word would have its good work in us today, Lord. Father, we pray that uh, you would prepare our hearts, God. Father, let us not be hard-hearted this morning, God. Let us not be distracted by the things of this life, Father, but by the power of your Holy Spirit, God, I pray that you would help us to focus on you, to set our hearts on you, to, uh, Lord, just look to you during this time, God. And we pray that in Jesus' name that this word would come into our hearts and produce fruit for your glory. God, we pray that... um, and Lord, that you, today you would edify your body, the church, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so our focus, our focus today is going to be on one verse, and it's going to be on the screen the whole time we talk. Um, the, the, the title of this message is Hope in God, and so today you're going to hear that a lot, and, and our goal today is, is that we can more set our hope on God. And the scripture that we're going to be focusing on today is 1 Peter 1, 13. And typically, if you guys have heard me teach before, uh, I typically read out of the New Living Translation because uh, to me it's a lot easier just to hear and to understand as the word is read out loud 
but uh, I chose today to put the English Standard Version uh, of our verse because I think it most clearly communicates uh, what Peter was trying to say. So let's read it together, and, and it'll be up there uh, the whole time. It says, Therefore, preparing your mind for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I'm sorry, I'm not trying to be distracting. I, I feel like, okay, I think it's good. I think it's good. Uh, so, this is the 13th verse in Peter's epistle. And um, something kind of unique here. It's the very first command that Peter gives in the whole letter. So we're 13 verses in, and Peter is just now beginning to say, believers, do this, okay? So that's, that's kind of where we are, uh, but it begins with a very important word. In fact, the word that it begins with is one of the most important words that we need to pay attention to in order to understand and, and properly interpret and apply the Bible to our lives. That word is, therefore. In the New Living Translation, he says, so, so and therefore do the same thing. When you see the word so, or you see the word therefore at the beginning of a Bible passage, what it's doing is it's pointing back to what was just said. And so if we want to understand a passage that has the word so or therefore at the front end of it, what we have to do is we have to look back and reflect on what we just read previously in order to understand what we're reading presently. Now, uh, I don't have weeks and weeks and weeks to teach you guys about 1 Peter 1, 1 through 12, which is an extremely rich and awesome passage. But what I'd like to do this morning is I'd like to uh, read through the passage, and then we'll go and we'll hit some high points, and then we'll, we'll be in a good place to, to really tackle 1 Peter 1, 13. So if you have your Bible, if you're, if you're reading on, uh, on your phone or on an app, I'm reading from the New Living Translation. If you don't have that, then just follow along as best you can, or if you'd like, you can just listen. Uh, it's 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 1. This letter is from Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. I am writing to God's chosen people who are living as foreigners in the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. God the Father knew you and chose you long ago, and his spirit has made you holy. As a result, you have obeyed him and have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. May God give you more and more grace and peace. All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is by his great mercy that we have been born again, because God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Now we live with great expectation, and we have a priceless inheritance, an inheritance that is kept in heaven for you, pure and undefiled, beyond the reach of change and decay. And through your faith, God is protecting you by his power until you receive this salvation, which is ready to be revealed on the last day for all to see. 
So be truly glad. There is wonderful joy ahead. Even though you have to endure many trials for a, for a little while, these trials will show that your faith is genuine. It is being tested as fire tests and purifies gold, though your faith is far more precious than mere gold. So when your faith remains strong through many trials, it will bring you much praise and glory and honor on the day when Jesus Christ is revealed to the whole world. Verse 8. You love him even though you have never seen him. Though you do not see him now, you trust him and you rejoice with a glorious, inexpressible joy. The reward for trusting him will be the salvation of your souls. This salvation has, was something even the prophets wanted to know more about when they prophesied about this gracious salvation prepared for you. They wondered what time or situation the Spirit of Christ within them was talking about when he told them in advance about Christ's suffering and his great glory afterwards. They were told that their messages were not for themselves but for you. And now this good news has been announced to you by those who preached in the power of the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. It is all so wonderful that even the angels are eagerly watching these things happen. And that brings us back to verse 13. So uh, now we've read through it, and I know some of you guys at verse 3 you checked out, you know. And I know some people it's hard to to read through, and so that's why I'm going to go back quickly and and just uh, hit these on a high point uh, so we can see what Peter wants us to hope in. Uh, in verses 1 through 12, Peter is describing all that God has done for believers and the glory that awaits all believers, not only in this life, but in the life to come. In verses uh, 1 through 2, he begins with the fact that God, God knew us and chose us to be saved by faith long ago. In verse 3, he says that it is by God's mercy that we were born again and came to faith in Jesus. In verse 4, he points to the priceless inheritance of joy and pleasure and fulfillment that we will have in God in eternity. In verse 5, he says that by his power, God will keep every believer in faith until we get to that inheritance. Now, I want to stop and have a quick parenthesis real quick. Because I think that I know that the world and I think that a lot of Christians have a have a wrong idea about what eternity is. Uh, eternity is not becoming an angel and sitting on a cloud and playing a harp forever. That's not eternity. That's Tom and Jerry. Eternity is not being in a church service forever. That's not what we are bound, uh, that's not our future is to, is to be in a church service forever. That's not what the Bible says. Eternity is when Christ will return to earth and destroy all his enemies, including the devil and death, resurrect all his people with new, glorious, eternal bodies, and make all things new here on earth. Okay? That's what the Bible says eternity is. You see, we're not going to be in some ethereal, heavenly, faraway realm. That's not, what, that's not where we're headed. 
but Jesus is going to bring heaven down to earth. We will dwell on that earth in new glorious bodies that never get sad or depressed or tired or old or sick. We'll no longer have sadness or apprehension or anxiety, but in God we will have fullness of joy. God will dwell with us and we will be completely and utterly joyful and happy as we have dominion with him over a better and more glorious earth. That's what Peter's pointing to. That's what eternity is with God. It is dwelling with him forever in fullness of joy and pleasure forevermore in bodies that do not get angry or sad or anxious or upset or sick. That is our future. That is our eternity. So close parentheses uh, and continuing with 1 Peter 1. In verse 6 through 7, he says, we are going to go through hard times. Can anybody attest to that? Has anybody, since you've been a believer, gone through something difficult? You know, the Bible never said that when we come to Christ, that bad things won't happen. He said, through many trials and tribulations will we enter into the kingdom of God. And so we cannot expect as believers not to hit difficult times. But this is what Peter says. He says, for believers... More often than not, hard times in life are not the judgment of God upon us, but it is the discipline of God refining our faith, making our faith purer, making our faith stronger. He says it's like refining gold. When the fire is set to the gold, the gold melts and and the impurities come to the top and they're removed by the refiner. And when the gold hardens again, it is purer. And it is stronger. But you know what? Fire hurts. Fire's difficult. And we all have experienced that in our lives. But God is, is refining us. He's not, uh, we can believe that He's refining us, not trying to destroy us. That's not God's intention for the believer. You see, and there's a lot of people preaching this lie. And so you have to watch out for this. The good news of the gospel, this is the lie. The good news of the gospel is not that if you come to Jesus, everything will go well for you. That is not the gospel. But the good news of the gospel is, is that when we come to Jesus, he will always be enough for us in the difficult seasons of life. That's the good news of the gospel. Amen? So, Verses 8 through 9, continuing. He tells us that because we love Jesus, even though we have never seen him, because we love him, even though we've never seen him, we will be saved. It's faith. It's through the eye of faith that we see Jesus. And then finally, in verses 10 through 13, he says that both the prophets and the angels have been anxiously waiting to see all that God's grace is going to do in our lives through this new covenant. And and what he's saying is, is back then, you know, Isaiah and Jeremiah and, and Elijah and these great prophets of the faith, they were saying these things inspired by the Holy Spirit, but they did not, excuse me, they did not fully understand what they were saying. And they thought, man, this sounds awesome. 
I would love to see the fulfillment of that. So the angels and the prophets stand on their toes looking at us in this very moment, anxiously waiting to see the things that God is going to do in his church. So that's verses 1 through 12. That's what Peter, when he said, therefore, that's what he was pointing back to. So now we're ready. We're ready to, to tackle this verse and, and, and really get into what it means. So therefore, pointing back to all those things, this. There's three parts to the verse. Um, first, we're told to prepare our minds for action. Second, we're told to be sober-minded. Be sober in your mind. Third, we're told to set our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, if you look at the structure of the sentence, um, you can kind of see that there's, of those three parts, the first two are supporting the third part, which is the main emphasis of the sentence. Um, so we see that the, that the emphasis of the verse is hoping in God's grace. Hoping in God's grace is the emphasis supported by uh, prepare your mind for action and be sober in mind. So let's read it again. Therefore, preparing your mind for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So here's Peter's first command in the epistle. Hope in God's grace. Now I want to tell you, if you really boil it down, this is the central message of Christianity. God has done and will do amazing things for us. Let me just run through a couple of things. We've already hit on a couple of them. Uh, God knew us and set his love and grace upon us before the world began. God provided us a Savior to pay for all of our sins. God died in our place and took the judgment we deserved. God made us new on the inside by the new birth. God gave us the gift of faith and salvation. God imputed to us the righteousness of Jesus by faith. You know, Martin Luther called it the great exchange. Uh, whenever I believe in faith on Jesus, Jesus gets all of my sin and I get all of his righteousness. That's awesome. Uh, God will keep us strong in our faith so that we endure to the end. God produces the fruit of the Spirit in our life, working it out, working itself out in acts of love, which are proofs and assurances of our salvation. Uh, God has prepared an inheritance of eternal life and fullness of joy and pleasure forevermore. God will make all things new in heaven and on earth, and we will dwell with him forever. See, God has done innumerably great things for, the, for his people, the church. And then the question comes, what are we supposed to do in response? We're to hope in that. We're to set our hope on that. 
we're to read about all the great things that God has done and hope in them. We are to live our lives fully convinced that Jesus is coming back and will reward those who faithfully follow after him. We're to lose this life in acts of love towards God and man and in the process gain eternal life. When our world is crashing down and there is sorrow and sadness and pain and difficulty, we hope in God's promises. We hope in something beyond this moment, beyond this life, beyond what we can even understand and comprehend. We hope in the things of God. And when we do that, it allows us to walk through even the darkest valley with great joy. And when we walk before the world in trials and tribulation with great joy in God, that brings great glory to God. So we hope, we hope, we hope. That's what Christianity is. And so that raises a question that Peter very graciously answers. How do we hope in God? How do we get our hope out of the things of this world and get our hope on God? And he answers that for us in the first two parts in verse 13. Uh, So the first part says that we are to prepare our minds for action. Now I'm going to ask, does anybody have a New King James Version? Uh, anybody? Right there. So New King James reads very differently uh, than this. And it actually says uh, the words in, in this first part, it says, Therefore, having girded up the, my, the loins of your mind. Okay? Uh, that's kind of weird, right? And uh, so, so this verse, some people, some, some translations have it literally translated like that. Gird up the loins of your mind. Others, uh, like the ESV, has uh, taken a stab at it and, and made it a little bit more uh, easy for us to grasp in modern language. And so let me show you why I think that this is a good translation. Let's see, where am I? Here we go. Uh, so Peter's giving an illustration here. Back in the first century A.D., the common garment that people wore was kind of akin to like a robe. They wore, uh, even the men, men and women, wore these, these kind of long garments that came down past their, their knees, and they were like flowing kind of robe-like garments. And that was the common cultural dress. The problem with that is, is that if they uh, ever needed to do any type of rigorous work, or, you know, back then before cars and, and, you know, they had horses and stuff, but a common means of transportation was running. And so if they needed to run, it, it really encumbered them. And so uh, if they had to do some type of rigorous work or they needed to run somewhere, what they would do is, is they would reach down in between their legs, pull the garment up, and tuck it into their belt. And what that would do is... It would turn the uh, long flowing garment into a type of running shorts that they were uh, fit to do some type of rigorous task or run or be active in some way. So that's the picture. 
And uh, basically what it did was it prepared a person for action or it prepared a person for work. So that's why I think this is a good translation. Uh, you know, it says, it says, having prepared your mind for action. So it's an illustration of the body that he's telling us to do with the mind. Everybody tracking there? Uh, so the question here now is, what kind of action should we prepare our minds for? You know, should I be running through worry all the time? Should my mind be ready to worry all the time? No. You know, the Bible says be anxious for nothing. Uh, but I believe that the Apostle Paul sums it up quite well in Philippians 4, 8. He said this, Fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. So we're to be active. We're to prepare our minds to be active in the truth of God's word. That's what we need to prepare our minds to be active in, to run, if you will, to to be rigorously working throughout the day in God's truth. So let's move to the second part. The second thing that Peter tells us to do is to be sober-minded. Now, what's the opposite of being sober? Anybody know? To be drunk, right? Sober is the opposite of drunk. Drunkenness numbs the senses. If we really boil it down, that's what it does. Drunkenness numbs our senses. So to be sober in mind means to not do things that make our minds numb to God. Those things that we do that cause us to be less in love with Jesus and make us less inclined to commune with God in prayer and His Word are the opposite of being sober-minded. So what Peter is telling us is that if anything causes us to seek God less in our hearts, don't do that. Be sober in your mind. So having said all that, I kind of rearranged the verse and paraphrased it up here just to kind of allow us to to see it uh, in, in maybe a different angle so that it'll maybe click in our hearts and in our minds. So uh, if you guys can put it up there while we read along, I think that's my only other note. Here we go. So here's here's my paraphrase. Hoping God's grace and promises by doing whatever it takes to prepare your mind to be active in God's truth and by avoiding those things that reduce your affections for God. Pretty simple, right? But how many of you guys know that the Bible is oftentimes, in fact, you know, one of the, one of the things I love about Jesus is that he says things so simply and they're so easy to, to get inside of you, but they are uh, incredibly complex and, and, and lifelong pursuits to apply, right? That's one of the things I love about Jesus. That's one of the things I love about the Apostle John and his gospel. Very simply written uh, and, and incredibly complex to execute, right? Uh, and so let's get practical here. Let's, let's look, and, and I want you to ask yourself a very pointed question. 
what am I doing in my life that is counterproductive to freeing my mind for truth because it is numbing my affections for God? I'm going to read that again, and then I'm going to be quiet for just a second. What am I doing in my life that is counterproductive to freeing my mind for truth because it is numbing my affections for God? It's a hard question. I'll tell you what God told me and what I believe a lot of people I won't say necessarily in this room, but I'll say I think a lot of Christians in our nation, uh, what's doing that in our hearts. Whenever I, whenever I took this to God, whenever I was praying to God about this, because uh, this scripture, I heard it a couple of months ago, and it struck me. It struck me, and it stuck with me, and I began to ask this question to myself, and, and, and this is what God told me. Television. Television's doing that to you, Josh. Television is numbing your heart towards me. It doesn't move you towards me. It moves you away from me. Um, in the name of entertainment, we will consume television that glorifies lust and adultery and fornication and murder and brutality and revenge, and anger, and godlessness. For many professing believers in America, television is shaping our worldview more than the Bible is for the simple reason that we are consuming significantly more television than we are God's Word. And can I tell you something, church? There's a problem with that. There's a problem there because the world is shaping our worldview instead of the Bible. We're allowing an unbeliever to write um, these stereotypes and metaphors that's, that say we have to fit inside of these things. Now, let me be real with you guys. I know, I know, I have three children and I work 40 plus hours a week. I know that we have to unwind, that the spring cannot always be wound tight and we can't always, uh, you know, for 13 hours a day, you know, have our nose in our Bible. I know that's not realistic. I know that as people that there has to be a way to unwind. But for many of us, unwinding is automatically vegging out in front of the TV and going blank, you know, and that's what we equate with unwinding. But I believe that as Christians, we have to find more edifying ways to unwind than just watching television. And, and you know, I'll be honest with you, I haven't, I haven't cut the cord and thrown it out. You know, uh, I watched the football game yesterday, uh, and, and we definitely don't want to be legalist here, right? Um, that's not what I'm getting at. Um, but the problem is, is that television is not, for the most part, truth. In fact, in most cases, it's preaching the opposite of what the Bible preaches. So we'll, well, let me not get too off my nose. Um, 
Now, I want to propose something radical to you because there's some people, man, I've been praying for you guys, and I know that there's some people here who the Lord has been dealing with you for weeks, if not months, because that's what he was doing with me whenever I heard this verse. And I believe that God has been doing that, and I pray that the Holy Spirit right now would would lead your heart. And I just want to propose a couple of radical things to you, countercultural things. When you're watching a television show and there's a sexually charged scene or a brutal murder or, 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 or some type of theme that is, is focused on something that pricks your conscience, that you know that you know that you know that it's drawing your heart away from the Lord and into the world, when you know that you know that, that it is counter to the Bible, Turn it off. Turn it off. Walk out. Walk out of the movie. Get up and walk out. You know, and 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 I've I've in the past I've I've had I've had things that I've watched and 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 there's just one scene, right? This is a good show, you know. And so I'm, I just keep watching it and 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 oh, there it is again, you know. Believers, we got to turn it off. We got to turn it off. Here's another one. Reduce the amount of television that you watch by replacing it with more edifying ways to unwind. It takes a little thought, it takes a little planning. It's radical. But I will tell you this but when, when the Lord led me to eliminate the stuff that goes against my conscience. And there was, there was several things that I immediately had to say, I just can't do it anymore, you know. Um, when he led me to do that, and when he led me to reduce the amount of television I consume, suddenly this weird thing happened. It's, it's weird. Suddenly I had more time. And I had more desire to read. It was weird. Not really, though. Uh, suddenly, my hunger for truth in the Word went through the roof. And I don't think that that was a coincidence. I really don't. So start listening to the Holy Spirit rather than shutting Him off regarding the images and the messages that, that you allow in your head. Don't default to, I'm being entertained, therefore it doesn't matter. Because what goes into your eyes, the Bible says that your eyes are the windows to your soul. And what goes into your ears goes into your heart and shapes your worldview. You know, Jesus, in, in, the, in the passage in John 15, he, he said, I am the vine. And my father is the gardener. He cuts away every branch that does not produce fruit. And he prunes the branches that do bear fruit so that they can produce even more fruit. Can I tell you today that, that God, there's things in our life that are hindering us from being fruitful for God. There's things in our lives that are hindering us from being what he wants us to be. And will you pray with me today? Will you start to pray with me? God, 
prune away those things in my life that are keeping me from producing fruit for you. And I just, I use television as an example. That is not the only thing that, that uh, draws our hearts away from God, right? Just to name a few, video games, work, exercise, self-image and beauty, the desire for money. Now, those things are not evil in and of themselves, right? We have to make money. We should take care of our bodies and present ourselves well. I exercise every day. I think it's a good thing. But when we set our hope on these things rather than God, and when we allow our affections to move away from God towards those things, then they become very evil. In fact, that is the definition of idolatry. Um, now, wanna, at this point, I was kind of writing this. I was typing it up, and I'm thinking, man, I'm hammering these people. <laughs> and and, I, and I, I know that that it kind of seems like I may be hammering you guys a little bit, but I, I have good news. There's good news in this. I'm going to read this so I don't mess it up. When we lay down those things, and those things are whatever it is that draws our heart away from God into the world, okay, whatever causes our affection and our desire for God to be less, when we lay down those things at the command of our Lord Jesus, he replaces them with infinitely better things. Like, doesn't even compare better things. Like, not even in the ballpark better things. Like, me, okay, you get the picture. We may enjoy a couple of examples. We may enjoy binging on television or video games, but I think everyone in here can agree that when you do that, you are left with a certain factor of emptiness on the inside of your soul. There's an emptiness there. Yes, it's fun. Yes, it's satisfying, but it leaves us lacking. It leaves us wanting. It leaves us desiring God less. Work and exercise and self-image and money are all going to fail us eventually if that's where our hope is. They're all going to fail. You know, we build these thoughts of security in, in our minds and we think I'm going to build this kingdom and I'm going to make security for myself. But I want to tell you something. Security is not a reality in the world that we live in. There is nothing material in this world that cannot be taken from you right now. There's nothing except for the sovereign hand of God leading us and protecting us and bringing us from one moment to the next. In Him, we live and we move and we breathe and we have our being. There's nothing in this life that can't go away suddenly except God. So when I place my hope in God and my whole world falls apart, I still have solid ground to stand on. 
Because I'm not defined by my house. And I'm not defined by how I look. And I'm not defined by my health. And I'm not defined by how successful my children are. And I'm not defined by the shows that I watch or the job that I have. I'm defined by the unchanging God. Amen? There's a quote that I read from C.S. Lewis, and I've just been reading it again and again and again and again. It's from his message, The Weight of Glory. He says this, quote, Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised,